Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack, and my co-host, Stephen Tool. Well, we've not got any new MPs to talk about this time. I know, it's a disappointment. What are we going to do? have to wait a few weeks for that, maybe. Now, I know you would like to talk about Brexit, of but course. I'm going to try to head you off by suggesting we talk general election instead. But it's a Brexit general election. Oh, done. Foiled we again. Com- we can combine the two. It's fantastic. What have you made of it so far, then? It's, uh, it's kind of always that thing of the first week of the campaign feels like a phony war, doesn't it? So, uh, you know, Parliament didn't actually officially break up until the middle of last week. And so uh, the campaigns proper haven't really started. Plus, we know it's going to be a six-week campaign, whereas uh, before the Fixed Term Parliament Act, uh, campaigns were normally sort of four, uh, maybe five weeks at most. So I think people are kind of pacing themselves a bit. I think from a Lib Dem perspective, which I guess is what this podcast is aimed at, uh, it's, I suppose... On that note, key question. Last time you revealed that you had (coughs) accidentally ceased membership of the Liberal Democrat Party earlier this year. So maybe we should check how Lib Dem a podcast is it this time around. <laughs> are, still, you, are you back in? I, I've been, uh, yep, the party has relented and um, the uh, whatever mistake happened with my direct debits has now been corrected. So I have still 20 years continuous membership. Excellent. So we are once again a 100% Liberal we Democrat are, podcast, are. brackets, variable loyalty. Uh, yeah, so let me provide the variable part of that loyalty <laughs> by saying, I guess it's not been a fantastic start for the Lib Dems and I don't think that's blaming the party Joe Swinson or whoever I just think that the first week has uh, partly because uh, as ever the media has tended to default to its traditional it's all about two parties and we've seen that in terms of the uh, televised leadership debates proposals that both uh, ITV and BBC the two main channels that are going to get the millions of viewers as opposed to Sky News or Channel 4 are going to default to having a Corbyn versus uh, Boris Johnson uh, showdown and that therefore kind of uh, squeezes out the Lib Dems and just generally there's been that kind of narrative that it's going to go back a bit to the 2017 election I mean, the Lib Dems obviously at a higher level much higher you know double um, the proportion but you know in the polls Mm. the parties kind of slip from low 20s to mid to high teens there's just that sense of is it going to be the usual third party squeeze um, that's uh, going to mean that it was yet another election that was almost but not quite so that's my uh, if you want the variable loyalty that's my that's my kind of sense of first week of the campaign is let's hope for the best but where's it going you know how with opinion pollsters particularly in the US but increasingly in the UK people talk about house effects so mm-hmm. how there are some pollsters that consistently tend to favour or have higher ratings for one party rather than another. And therefore, when you see a new poll from them, you should adjust mentally for the house that it's from. Sure. And I, th- I think there's probably a podcaster house effect. Because I, <laughs> well, I think to long-term listeners of the podcast, that will sound a remarkably upbeat and positive description of the <laughs> them circumstances from you. The podcaster house effect, that is way, way off the scale. And I think you're, you're generally right. I mean, one of the odd things about this sort of first week of the election is that the manifestos haven't been yeah. aren't yeah. published yet. They will be in the next few days. Um, the list of candidates who's officially nominated, that's again coming out a few days after. And congratulations uh, to the Dems for so far not having too many racists or... Uh, it's, it's almost like we... Rape we, trial collapses yeah, or any like other Yeah, it's like we have a candidate who, approval uh, process. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, the thing that's very odd about the trouble the other parties have run into is most of them don't seem to be 
exactly deep and dark secrets unearthed yeah. from the past yeah. or something that somebody was covering up. Yeah, it, it seems to be pretty straightforwardly, semi-publicly available yeah. um, information. It all uh, The thing that always puzzles me about such cases, with one exception, I think, actually, is you also... I just wonder what on earth did the candidate themselves think? Mm. Did they really... Did Had they forgotten or maybe compartmentalised that they had ever been like that? Or did they not see there was a problem? I think the, um, the, the Tory who had to stand down because of his deeply offensive rape remarks, I mean, he had been through a previous wave of yeah. controversy over yeah. those. So perhaps he thought, clearly wrongly, but perhaps he thought, I've done the controversy, you know, I can move on with my, you know, with, with, with my political ambitions. But in the other cases, I do think just how did you ever not think this yeah. was going to be a problem? Anyway, back to the Liberal Democrats. Uh, boringly scandal-free so far. <laughs> May have may have spooked that now. Um, I think the other thing to mention is that certainly when I was sort of really first working on general elections in 97, 01, 05, the pattern tended to be, and we saw this as well, for example, back in 1983, when the third party moved up in the polls in the election, it tended to actually basically happen in the second half of the campaign. Mm. Um, now, I've not gone back through systematically enough general elections to be sure that this is a consistent pattern that we should look for, but it's certainly plausible that the dynamic of an election campaign can be a little bit of an initial focus on whichever of the two parties yeah, currently that's, that's largest fair. in the polls, and then as the campaign and the coverage and so on kicks in, that yeah. matters may change. Yeah. The big unknown question for the Lib Dems is the level of activity in our target seats is just off the scale compared to anything I've seen before. Really? When you combine the level of central party spending mm-hmm. and grassroots activism. So I was in Esher and Walton, Dominic Raab's constituency, mm-hmm. on Saturday doing a grassroots campaign mobilisation event. Uh, must have been close to 140 people turned up on a Saturday morning. Um, and they weren't turning up on a Saturday morning because Joe Swinson was visiting they were turning up on a Saturday because morning you were for now. a campaign briefing with myself <laughs> and Bess. And Bess, great person who's currently working at HQ, but I'm sure Bess won't mind me saying that Bess and I are maybe not tier one Saturday morning draw. <laughs> so an amazing turnout of people. When we did a show of hands, almost none of them had canvassed before. And yeah. at the end, almost all of them said they would canvass before okay. Christmas. Yeah. And so that scale right of... effect. Correct. <laughs> Phew. Job done. Tick. I'll be invited back to another one of those. But that scale of grassroots mobilisation, yeah. in, in that also organised way, and is way beyond anything I've seen before. And it's not only in Esher and Walton, plus the volume of direct party activity through things like direct mail and so on, and yeah. door-to-door delivery in, in, in these target seats, and also on a scale in terms of number of seats, way above anything the party's seen for a long time. So even if the national polls end up being mediocre, it's possible to imagine quite a significant yeah. number of Lib Dem gains. And um, very hard, I think, to judge in any way accurately how likely that ratio, you know, what that ratio between seats and votes is likely to be. But yeah but uh, lots of reasons to be more optimistic than you. <laughs> yeah, no, look, I'm, 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 I'm always uh, hopeful it's the def- default liberal condition. I guess it's just a question of whether or not this does get to be, because this is an important election, because it is a, sque- uh, a, a Brexit election and a snap election, even if it's been one that's been on the agenda for months and months, so it doesn't feel as snap as all that. Uh, it's whether or not it does end up feeling like, uh, you know, if you want to stop Brexit, actually... You're just going to have to vote for the stop Brexit, the closest to that stop Brexit party, and in quite large swathes of the country, 
because of the Lib Dems having fallen back since 2010, that won't necessarily be the Lib Dems in that position. But you mentioned Esher and Walton, and it's an interesting mm. one, because uh, it's also one of the seats where the parties commissioned some constituency polling mm. uh, in order to boost its chances. Um, it, you know, obviously, it didn't necessarily know that when it commissioned the poll, but the results of the poll from observation mm. uh, show that the Lib Dems were in a very strong second place, mm. what, 5 6% behind yeah. Dominic Raab? And so that's the... Uh, mm. You know, the clear squeeze message there to Labour voters is if you want to get rid of Dominic Raab, if you want to send a message to the Conservatives, your best option here is to vote Liberal yeah. Democrat. And that's clearly something we're seeing repeated with a number of constituency yeah. polls, whether it's in yeah. uh, um, Wokingham, um, John Redwood's mm. seat where Philip Lee... Uh, is uh, is challenging him and a couple of other seats as well. You're reminding me of them. Uh, like Jacob Rees-Mogg, North, uh, North East yep. Somerset, yep. Uh, the Labour-held seat of um, Cambridge, among the other uh, yep. other places, Portsmouth South as well, yeah, uh, yeah. among the places that there've been constituency polls. I guess there are four things. I'm going to bravely try and remember four things to say about constituency polls. Mm-hmm. One is part of the message for them, the reason why parties commission them and then release them, is not just about squeezing other parties vote, so in the Dominic Raab case saying to Labour and potentially, you know, otherwise people who might favour the Greens and so on, although obviously there, there are the candidate deals as well that complicate matters, but you know, saying to those other supporters, look, the Lib Dems can win, worth voting for us, mm-hmm. it's a way of mobilising your own side, of helping drive out turnout amongst your own supporters if people feel like they're in with a chance of winning, um, but also it's a way of saying in that seat to Conservative Remainers, it's okay, you don't have to vote for one of the leading supporters of a mm-hmm. effectively a very, very hard Brexit. You can vote the Lib, Lib Dem and you won't let a Jeremy Corbyn candidate in. So that's, that's one thing to bear in mind about the polls. Now, that leads on to the question about should we trust the polls? Sure. And there, are, the, and there were lots of constituency polls done by the Lib Dems uh, in 2015 mm. in particular yeah. in order to try and shore mm. up uh, mm. and to assess, I guess, genuinely, what were the prospects for the Lib Dems yep. in uh, existing yep. what were then yep. thought of as safe yep. seats, such as Charles yep. Kennedy's? And uh, they had variable and results. They, and, well, they, yeah, I and mean, they, they yes. proved not to be accurate. And that's not to say, because of course, forecast, that they are not forecasts, mm. opinion polls cannot be forecasts, they're they are snapshot. snapshots, snapshots at the period in time when they're done. So yep. they may well have been completely accurate and then got totally washed yeah. away by the campaign. I think so. you're being maybe a little generous. Maybe, to maybe. Uh, but we don't know in that sense. And, and so one of the, one of the point two possibly on my <laughs> list of four is that constituency polls are genuinely harder to do because you've yeah. got a smaller pool of people to try to get hold of. It's harder to know exactly how you should weight them. There's less of a track record of doing polls in that constituency and being able to benchmark them against election results. So all in all, the process is genuinely harder. And therefore, the caveats one should apply to constituency polls are a bit larger. That said, constituency polls quite often are accurate. But there are some real methodological unknowns. Sometimes it has turned out to be more accurate to name candidates in the voting question. Sometimes it's turned out to be more accurate not to name Mm -hmm. candidates. So the only really sure thing you can say about constituency polling methodology is anyone who says, ah, that poll used this methodology, therefore it's obviously wrong, is not nearly as knowledgeable as they should be. (laughs) Because on almost all of these methodological questions, you can look at examples either way. And it was a good example with the Lib Dem polls in 2015. Quite a lot of people naively criticised them for naming candidates, but in fact there were a whole load of polls commissioned by people other than the Lib Dems that named candidates that actually did very well. 
Um, the other thing to bear in mind... Is this about, point three? Uh, possibly point four. Okay. The other thing <laughs> to bear in mind about the constituency polls is exactly what you said. They're a snapshot. And if you look at, for example, parliamentary by-elections, it's not uncommon for the results yeah. to be different from yeah. the polls, but often in ways that are quite plausible as to how the campaign may have developed. Mm. And one of the things that is particularly common is for the tactical voting message only really to kick in powerfully, or at least in its final phase, to kick in really powerfully in the last very last few days. Mm. So you may have a poll a week or two weeks out from polling day that shows the third party on, say, 15%, and then when it comes to actual actual voting, yeah. they're down to maybe 5%, and that's not because the poll was wildly inaccurate. It's because a lot of that final tactical voting decision happens at the last yeah. moment. In fact, we had a recent example, I suppose, with Brecken and Radnorshire, mm in that there was a constituency poll and it showed the Lib Dems further in front than the result actually was because in the intervening period, Boris Johnson had become Prime Minister and got the traditional kind of new Prime Minister bounce that was reflected mm. in uh, in that actual mm. poll as opposed to an opinion mm. poll. And I remember, to your point about the it can kick in late, um, do you remember the 1997 general election and I think it was The Observer That's right. published yep, the, Observer. the weekend before uh, polling day published a list of 15 or so constituency polls mm. that it had done where the Conservatives were officially well in front, they were safe seats, but where it was shown, such as Michael Portillo's mm. uh, then seat, that was shown that they were in trouble. And uh, even though I think, I'm right in saying that in the uh, Portillo poll in particular, I think he was still ahead in that opinion poll, that observer um, exercise was seen to be critical in terms of persuading enough people that uh, actually a tactical vote would yeah. make a difference to the result. And actually, the 97 polls were, or are rather, a relevant sort of parallel in another way, in that what they showed in several seats was that Labour was the best place to challenge the Tories, even though Labour had finished third in that constituency hmm. in the 1992 election. Not surprisingly, quite a lot of Lib Dem campaigners reacted with outrage at these <laughs> polls, uh, but very often Labour then went on to win those seats. Yeah. And I think there's an obvious parallel now um, where some people, both, uh, you know, both in the media and elsewhere, sort of have a, have a slightly instinctive starting point, which is reasonable, of saying, well, surely what we should look at is the 2017 general election result mm -hmm. in a constituency, you know, the last election result in a constituency of, of the same sort of election, which as a starting point is not unreasonable, yeah. but it's very ambitiously self-confident to then also say, and I'm also going to believe that nothing has changed in politics since 2017, mm -hmm. which might mean who is the best place challenger to the Tories has changed, yeah. even though what we have seen since 2017 is the Labour Party drop a lot in popularity, the Liberal Democrats rise a lot in popularity, the Greens rise a bit in popularity, and a series of other elections across the country, council yeah. by-elections, parliamentary by-election, European elections, local elections, all pointing in the same direction of saying, well, what the national polls are saying has happened to overall levels of support for the party is reflected in other yeah. ways. So to say, well, actually, we're going to be absolutely 100% confident that all of that is definitely complete nonsense and the only thing we can ever pay attention to in the 2017 election result involves a lot of heroic assumptions, particularly because if you think about the that dynamic that has changed, is that's quite different from what happened between 2015 and 2017. But broadly speaking, Labour Party ahead of the Liberal Democrats in, in, in many more constituencies than Lib Dems ahead of Labour. 
2015 and 2017, Labour was went up in the polls, especially during the 2017 election, while the Lib Dems were stagnant. So that was the party that was in second mm-hmm. going up, broadly speaking, while the party in third stagnant or fading. This time, what we've seen is the party that in 2017 finished second in a lot of places falling in support and the party that finished third in a lot of places rising sharply in support. So again, there's a degree, I think, of naivety or at least heroic assumption making to say, well, the 2015 to 17 pattern is this pattern that we should expect in 2017 to 19, as in look at the last general election and that's a good guide, even though the dynamics of the two situations are so different. I think, uh, I mean, obviously the Lib Dem loyalist part of me agrees with you, I suspect you might not have been arguing quite the same way um, two years ago when the 20 or two and a half years ago when the 2017 election was going on because mm. then the narrative would have been similar that, you know, look, Labour has fallen back a lot mm. uh, since the last election. Um, Jeremy Corbyn clearly isn't fit mm. um, to lead. Uh, his leadership ratings mm. are dire. And look, the Lib Dems are on the up. Look at all those local by-elections they've been winning. Mm. And but at if the you look time, at the... in the polls, uh, the Lib Dems were in the sort of, you know, 12... Well, we've, 13, we've, yeah, I, I think you're slightly overegging how much we, we edged into double figures. Well, yeah, it, it, was, it, it was more we were sort of up from something like 8 to 11. That was you know, more yeah, the, yeah. the pattern. And this time, it's more like we're up from sort of 7 to somewhere in the 15 to 20 yeah, band. Yeah. And that, so that is a very big it, it is. In, it in, is a difference of degree. But I, I still think that, that, you know, I can understand why... Uh, you know, the liberal part of me that always tries to be fair to the opponent would say I can understand why Labour would feel aggrieved um, from that point of view. Okay. But it does bring us on to um, the Unite to Remain. Oh, though before we do that, we oh. should just very briefly okay. mention there is another source of data, which are the MRP models. Yeah, yeah. Um, so what... Multi-regression post-stratification polling. Correct. Uh, what MRP models are is they are based on very large national polls which then allow you to essentially model what the result is likely to be in each constituency. So if you know the things like the demographic and so on, makeup of each constituency, you can say, ah, okay, this constituency has 712 white, childless men aged between 40 and 45. In our massive national sample, we've actually polled a lot of those people, so we can see, well, okay, what's their voting... What's their voting pattern? We can apply that to that group. We can then look at the next group. And think it's so it's extrapolating well. national polling to local results based on constituency profiles. Exactly. And, and, and the, the MRP modelling has a lot going for it. And the YouGov MRP model was very successful mm-hmm. in 2017. It is, though, worth so saying... Lord Ashcroft did a, an MRP model exactly. and it, was, it crashed and burned. Exactly. M- MRP is not results. magic. And therefore, we currently have, it looks like, three public MRP models designed to encourage tactical voting from different Remain groups. Because, of course, you know, why have one? Why have one? We believe in diversity. This is a <laughs> Competition good Competition is good, yeah. Um, and the patterns in them are, are not identical. In a way, that is almost helpful if you're trying to understand the situation in a seat. Because if you have different MRP models and also a, things like constituency polling and also things like... You know, levels of local activity on the ground, etc. You know, if you have a whole set of different criteria all pointing in the same direction, that mm-hmm. gives you a lot more confidence as to who the tactical choice really is yeah. is between. Um, but it should be said, the constituency polls and the MRP models, in terms of the data published so far, tell a broadly consistent yeah. picture. Yeah. And in particular, where the constituency polls show a change in who are the top two parties, so mm-hmm. as in the Liberal Democrats have moved up to being one of the top two, that is, matches what the MRP data shows yeah. as well, with possibly one exception where it's very close between three parties. Yeah. 
So, Unite to Remain. Yes. Uh, this was the deal. Unite brokers. to Remain have united. Um, yeah, well, in 60, uh, around 60 yeah. seats anyway. So this was the deal uh, brokered by uh, Heidi Allen and others um, to bring together um, the Liberal Democrats, the Greens and Plaid Cymru. It doesn't include the SNP and it doesn't include Labour. Um, based on their choices, I think they yeah. were both approached, but um, didn't want to be part of the Unite to Remain initiative. And it's coalesced around these 60 seats, mm. most of which um, are to the benefit of the Lib Dems. Uh, so it's, what, yeah. 47 or so of them are going to be... Uh, the Lib Dems are going to get the, the run of, mm. the, uh, of the election, uh, with neither Greens nor, if mm. it's in Wales, Plaid Cymru yeah. standing. But obviously that does mean 13, if yeah. I've done my math right, seats, there will be... The Lib Dems not standing yep. against, uh, and, and so Plaid Cymru or Greens will um, get a free run. Most of them, I guess, are that are pretty unsurprising. Quite a few of them, the Lib Dem ones, I think, looking down the list, were previous Lib Dem seats, um, which uh, the party's hoping to win back, or uh, you know, place like Bath, where the party holds it mm. and uh, obviously doesn't want to. Split yes, the there's, there's a basic starting point of all of the incumbent seats. Yep. Uh, for each of, each of the three parties and I think there are only, included in the I mean, There's set. only uh, one or two that uh, wouldn't say surprised me because I could entirely understand why the deals were made, but uh, you know, Bristol West, where you know, up until four years ago the party actually had an mm. MP, and Stephen Williams, uh, is now not on the list and it's Greens, but they came second in the last election, so it's understandable, but it just it's a kind of graphic yeah, illustration I, I think of how that was the party one one of the ones that generated more rather than less discussion probably internally in the Lib Dems. Um, I think what is what that highlights and what made in some ways the talks even trickier is of course you know, any sort of deal where in the end people can decide to walk away from it and not sign up to it. You, everyone has to feel they get enough from yeah, it yeah. to be worthwhile. And the number of you know, promising areas for the Greens in the country is pretty small. Yeah. So there is there is an extent to which if, if you don't put Bristol West in, is there enough material to work with in that sense mm-hmm. to make a deal on, on a big scale? Um, I, th- I think what if you look down the list of seats, what it really does illustrate is the number of seats the Lib Dems are seriously going for, which the party has not performed particularly well in previously. Mm-hmm. There's a, yeah. quite a lot of basically southern England, conservative, remain territory where the party has maybe you know, done reasonably well got a got a decent handful of councillors and so on quite often but you look at previous general election results you look at previous target seat lists you know seats that have never been you know never made the cut yeah previously um so there's a good insight there as to what the liberal democrats really think of as the party sort of prospects yeah and and sort of where where the lib dem battleground is in that sense in the election the other thing that's maybe worth mentioning a little footnote to add to the unite to remain arrangement is there are also three seats where the Lib Dems are standing down uh, unilaterally yeah, for right. independence. Yeah. Um, this is for Dominic Grieve, for Anna Subri and for uh, Gavin Shuka. Okay, yeah, I hadn't, right, I hadn't about Gavin. Yeah, so uh, I mean, the point you've made before, I guess, um, which is worth touching on again is... Especially if you're going to agree. Is, uh, is uh, <laughs> let's see, I'm not, I'm not sure yet. Uh, <laughs> is, first of all, is the potential that it might actually change the results in mm. the seats themselves, that it could be the difference between a Conservative majority, yeah. uh, or Labour majority even, um, in a couple of seats, is, uh, is, the, is the few votes that could be switched from Greens and, and or Ply Cymru yeah. to, uh, to the Lib Dems might make a difference. Uh, but that's probably that's going to be a, a small minority of the seats that would mm. actually flip, because 
you know, elections don't tend to be decided by quite that many slender margins, but it will make a difference in some potentially. We will shortly be receiving a letter from the, Sarah um, Olney <laughs> and from the chair of North East Fife Liberal Democrats. Yeah, yeah, well, obviously there are seats where it could, fear, from, on the basis of the last election, yeah. would have made a difference. It's, it's whether knowing whether or not it will make yeah, a difference at the coming election. Uh, so there's that. Um, but there's also the wider point, I think, which is the part where I probably do agree with you, which is the signal that it gives off. Um, so even though obviously this pact only deals, uh, only applies to 60 seats, the news coverage about it is greater. Mm. The signal it sends out that the Lib Dems are willing to work with other parties mm. that uh, agree with it on, on Brexit shows that uh, it's a party willing to um, you know, make those compromises, etc. And that in itself may be a more important vote shifter in terms of the total votes mm. it shifts than the, uh, the individual mm. deals we'll make in 60 seats. But do you, think, do you think this deal, A, will get enough publicity and B, will get any kind of traction that means that its impact is larger than some of its parts, that it won't just be in those 60 seats, but that it will send out that message, say, to Conservative Remainers in those southern seats, which uh, the party is targeting, that uh, you know, the Lib Dems are serious about stopping Brexit and are willing to work with other parties, and that will in itself make a difference. Yeah, I, I guess one of the risks with the way the pact has been done is that it's basically something that's been negotiated and, OK, that's now job done, everyone gets on with it. And therefore it becomes a one-off media story as mm. opposed to some sort of Unite to Remain umbrella organisation that continues to be active and high-profile and mobilising volunteers and all of that all the way through the election and therefore has more of a chance of being a regular part of the media story. Now, given just how many Remain groups there are around and how fractious the Remain... <laughs> Uh, ecosystem is uh, yeah. and all of the different attempts to mobilise people. I can see why Unite to Remain has gone down the the route much more of essentially being we will organise a one-off set of arrangements. We will do a whole load of fundraising around that. Notice the fundraising emails are still coming into me. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm still getting them in my email inbox. So there is some ongoing activity, but not trying to be a player in the ongoing election story in quite the same way as. Right. A, you know, a pressure group or some other campaign organisation normally would be. Um, so I can see why, but there's definitely a risk there. Um, I, I, and also there's a risk in the sense that because uh, Heidi Allen, as it were, is the Unite to Remain figurehead, is standing down, that also, again, mm -hmm. that the sort of media world and so on moves on quite quickly sure. from people who are no longer MPs to people who want to be MPs and MPs up for re-election. And that said... The the purpose, as it were, of the Unite to Remain Pact is to try to tip the balance in in a decent number of seats so that in a close election it affects the outcome. Yeah. And therefore it doesn't necessarily have to have a huge overall impact on the national scene in order to be able to achieve that. And I think there definitely is a little bit of sort of background branding benefit, as it were, for all of the participants to be seen to be working cross-party, yeah. etc. But that that is likely to be bigger the more successful those parties are being, because then the more coverage they'll get, and therefore the more this sort of you know the, the fact they're taking part in this pact will get mentioned. So it's likely to be a sort of self-reinforcing yeah. cycle. So I don't think in that sense it's a magic solution. But if one or more of the parties in the pact manage to do well and get a bit of momentum in the election campaign, it will definitely help magnify that. Yeah. Um, so we talked an awful lot mm. about uh, kind of the electioneering side of this. Oh, and one thing we've not talked about at all, actually, which was, I think, top of our list, was around um, bar charts. Because um, it suddenly struck me, actually, that uh, one of the uh, 
we chose the title. Are you going to come out as a pie chartist? No, I'm not going to come out. No, 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 no. I, I, just, I, I detest pie charts for <laughs> pretty much every graphical representation. But we never explained to people why we called this podcast Never Mind the Bar Charts. Now, for Lib Dem aficionados, it's, it's probably obvious. Um, for those people who aren't quite as uh, inculcated in Lib Demery uh, as us and most of our listeners, what is the mystery of bar charts? Um, so... I mean, you, you've written the history, literally have written the history of the Lib Dem use yeah. of bar charts, but it's essentially it's an attempt by the party to try and squeeze other parties. It's an attempt to get past that, the Lib Dems are a wasted vote uh, kind of argument that you still uh, often hear on doorsteps, and to show that the Lib Dems are in that particular seat, whether it's a council seat or whether it's a parliamentary seat, are the uh, second mm. or perhaps even first yeah. um, party, and that, you know they are in the top two. And so it's traditionally been seen as a, you know, Labour or Conservatives, delete as applicable, can't win here. So if you want to stop Labour or Conservatives, delete as applicable, vote Liberal Democrat, and your vote will count in this um, particular area, even if it might not feel like it nationally. Uh, so that's the kind of history of bar mm. charts, and they've become infamous, uh, not least among Lib Dem opponents, who often take umbrage, uh, sometimes genuine, oftentimes confected, at the uh, occasional um, sleights of hand, I guess they would say, that the Lib Dems pull by putting the party in that very closely contested top two places, even though if you actually looked at the current polling or the current the last set of election results, the Lib Dems wouldn't be there. So, Mark, tell us, why bar charts, why are they important, and why don't the Lib Dems um, actually make sure they're accurate? Um, I mean, I guess you've sort of covered covered their importance in, in, in that introduction, uh, but the, the heart of it is that under first-past-the-post... And actually, under other electoral systems as well, tactical voting can be important, but under first-past-the-post is particularly important. Um, there's a whole episode we could do about to what extent and when can you successfully tactically vote in STV elections, but we'll leave let's, that. Let's not ever We'll leave that, that for <laughs> a special for another day. You, you can get uh, a different guest host for that, for that episode. Um, but under first-past-the-post in single-member constituencies, tactical voting is particularly important. It's also worth remembering that the drivers here of tactical voting are partly the way the electoral system works mm -hmm. and partly a lot of members of the public say they are very happy to consider tactically voting. And if you ask them, say, after an election, things like British Election Study and other sort of research projects, you know, did you vote tactically or not? Lots of people happily admit to voting tactically. So this is something that lots of voters are willing to do are happy to do, are not embarrassed by it. It's mm -hmm. not that they refuse to tell people. It's therefore perfectly reasonable for political campaigns to say, well, OK, if there's all of this potential tactical voting going on, let's try and argue our case as to why we should be the recipient of that yeah. tactical vote. And, of course, there are, in some cases, different conflicting arguments that can be made. And my view is very much that political campaigning is a bit like being a lawyer in a court of law, in that your job is to make your case. Now, if you are up on, up, up on trial, let's say, Stephen, for crimes against the English language, you wouldn't want your defence lawyer... Hey, hang on, how did this be... choice come <laughs> to your mind, first of all? <laughs> you wouldn't want your defence lawyer to spend lots of time laying out all the pros of the prosecution case and how they should be carefully weighed in consideration and how some of them might have merit. The job of the defence lawyer is to make the case for the defence. The job of the prosecution lawyer is to make the case for the prosecution. Likewise, the and job the electorate of... is the judge. Exactly. And, the, and as with the lawyer parallel, there are obviously some ethical boundaries. So just as it isn't appropriate, in fact, it's far more than being just not appropriate for a defence lawyer to fabricate evidence. <laughs> Likewise, but the gist of it is, if different people disagree, 
that isn't about one of them lying or being misleading or getting it completely wrong. That is part of what debate and disagreement over what is the best bit of evidence to point out. You know, that is, yeah. that's just part of life, as it were. It's not. Um, and so the reason I mention that is you do sometimes get people who say, oh, well, look, you know, one lot say this, another lot say that, therefore one of them must be just completely nonsense and, and, and so on. And actually, no, that's, you can yeah. genuinely look at evidence and point to different conclusions. I'd give you, an, you know, if you look at, say, for example, some of the places where the Liberal Democrats have gone up massively in popular support in council elections within a constituency in the last two years, sure. you could say, yeah, that's a good sign that the party is genuinely on the up and has got much more of a chance of winning than it yeah. might otherwise. You could imagine someone else saying, well, actually, no, that's, not, that's a council election, not a general election. Both of those arguments have some validity. I actually happen to think, if you look at the evidence, that growth in local government success in areas is actually pretty well correlated to subsequent general election success. So I'm very happy to make the former but I appreciate somebody can make the latter mm -hmm. case as well. And certainly if you're making the former, it's not somehow dishonest to yeah. be looking at different sorts of information. That said, you know, a bar chart is a very good graphical way of presenting it, but as I, as I did in my snappily titled blog post, Responsible Bar Charting, which I'll <laughs> include a link to in the show notes, um, you know, I pointed out there are ways of doing this properly, yeah. such as being clear about where your evidence has come from, and of course making sure that your bars are at the right height. Um, Right. So, so one can perfect. do it properly. Yeah, millimeter millimeter perfect should be a sort of pride. I think the, the other thing that's worth saying is there isn't some alchemy that comes from sticking a bar chart and a leaflet that suddenly converts a seat from mm. a dire Lib Dem third or worst place into being a Lib Dem triumph. It's only going to work if it has some credibility attached to it, not just by the statistics used mm. being valid, but also that it's backed up by the Lib Dems clearly mm. being on the up in that particular area, whether that is counted in terms yeah. of council representation or whether it's activists on yeah. the ground or things like garden posters going up yeah. or leaflets being distributed, etc. Et you know, it is just one smallish, it's quite visible, but one smallish mm. part of a wider strategy by which the Lib Dems yeah. get to be seen as the main yeah. challengers in a particular area. It's it's not as if sticking a bar chart on a leaflet, delivering it once and then hoping people will read it and memorise it and then vote accordingly. That's not how it works. Yeah. And I think some opponents occasionally mm. kind of don't quite understand that it's just, yeah. you know, it is a, a small part of a much, yeah. much bigger strategy. Yeah. And, and bar charts don't just have to be about an election result. So, you know, I've done bar charts in the past, which have been very properly labelled and correct heights. But what they have shown is, say, the change in the number of councillors since the last election. Yeah. And that yeah. sort of you know, other data, you can say, yeah, and of course other people might want to make an argument the other way. But and of course if people want to abolish bar charts, the probably the easiest way to do it would be to abolish the current first-past-the-post exactly. electoral system because there'll be almost no it, point to having bar charts. It's remarkable how vociferous people who love an electoral system that re encourages tactical voting become in then saying that tactical voting is absolutely awful. Yeah. Um, now, we better wrap up. We have. So very and we haven't even covered the, the main thing we were going to cover actually on this uh, podcast was going to be the Lib Dem manifesto and the big issues that will determine yeah. the election. But instead, we've talked yeah. about polling and electoral tactics and, and, bar and battlegrounds and bar charts. So uh, stay tuned. Next episode, we may actually talk about some of the issues yeah. in the election. What will also happen uh, between now and the next episode is the delayed closer polls in the Liberal Democrat internal elections. Oh, remind me who's standing uh, in the so, in Mark. I, I believe one of us is standing for party president, Stephen. <laughs> Hopefully you can remember which one of the two of us it is. <laughs> um, so the closer polls put back a week to Friday the 15th of November. 
If you've not had your ballot paper, please email elections, with an S, at libdems.org.uk. Top tip, if you have emailed them and not heard back and then emailed them again and still not heard back and thinking what the heck's going on, check in your spam folder. I must have had more than a dozen people I've spoken to in the last few days who thought they were in that situation of keeping on emailing and never hearing back, but they'd been getting replies back each time that land up in their spam. Not quite sure why replies back from that address seem to be prone to landing in people's spam folders at the moment, but they are, so do double-check that. Definitely emailing is also much better than phoning, because as you can imagine, the phone lines at HQ are a little bit rung off the hook at the moment with general election Mm -hmm. stuff. Um, So yeah, voting closes Friday the 15th of November for party president and a whole set of other party committees and posts, and watch out for news then subsequently of the results. And we're going to have to decide how many of these podcasts to do during the election. So if you really loved or really hated this episode, please go find us on Twitter at Bar Chart Podcast. Tell us what you thought of the show, what you'd like to hear from us during the election. And of course, absolute silence is acceptable as an answer, uh, but we may decide to ignore you. Half an hour of absolute silence would be quite good, wouldn't it? (laughs)